0: Remain standing and let's pray this prayer together. Grant, almighty God, that as you shine on us by your word, we may not be blind at midday nor willfully seek darkness and thus lull our minds asleep. But may we be roused daily by your words and may we stir ourselves up more and more to fear your name and thus present ourselves and all our pursuits as a sacrifice to you, that you may peaceably rule and perpetually dwell in us until you gather us to your celestial habitation, where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory through Jesus Christ our Master. Yes, and very amen, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 88, Psalm 88, I'll be reading a translation this morning by Hebrew scholar John Golden Gay. It has been said by many through the ages that there is no sadder prayer in the Psalter. And I I like your amendment to the sermon title, Brother Jim, A Desperate Cry From the Grave. Psalm 88. A song, a composition, the Korahites, the leaders on pipe for affliction, an instruction from Heman the Ezraite. Yahweh my God who delivers, by day I have cried out, by night before you, may my plea come to your attention, bend your ear to my shout, because my whole person is full of trouble. My life has arrived at Shaol. I have come to count with the people who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, an outcast among the dead, like people slaughtered, lying in the grave, of whom you have been mindful no more when they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the deepest pit, in dark places, in the depths. Upon me... Your fury has pressed down with all your breakers. You have afflicted me. You have distanced my acquaintances from me and made me a great abomination to them. I am confined so that I cannot go out. My eye has become dim through affliction. I have called you, Yahweh, each day. I have stretched out my hands to you. Do you work a wonder for the dead? Do ghosts rise to confess you? Is your commitment announced in the grave, your truthfulness in Abaddon? Is your wondrous act made known in the darkness, your faithfulness in the land of forgetting? But I, Yahweh, I have cried to you for help. In the morning my plea meets you. Yahweh, why do you reject me? Hide your face from me. I am afflicted, dying since youth. I, I have borne your terrors. I despair. Your acts of fury have overwhelmed me. Your acts of terror have destroyed me. They are around me like water all day long. They've surrounded me altogether. You have distanced friend and neighbor from me. My acquaintances, darkness. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Yahweh, our rock and our redeemer. Yes and very amen, in Jesus' name. What is your expectation in life? What is your expectation from life? What is your expectation of life? That's a pretty broad question, so maybe we should just narrow it down a little bit to a moment a manageable portion of time. When you wake up in the morning and the day is just starting and you're heading into it, how are you expecting that the day will go? What will the next 24-hour period of your life be like? A little over a week ago, I think it was Jonathan, one of our elders here sent me a link to a sermon by Tim Keller on this Psalm. And Tim reminded me of a quote from that theological masterpiece that we all know, The Princess Bride. <laughs> it's that moment when Buttercup, speaking to who she thinks is the dread pirate Roberts, you remember? And she's describing the agony of the loss of the love of her life. And because it's actually Wesley who's upset that because he thinks she's getting married to... Humperdink He's angry at her, she's angry at him. And she says, "You mock my pain." And he responds, "Life is pain." Highness. And anybody who tells you differently is selling something. And we are awash in a culture that is selling us something. Namely that life can be that life should be pleasure and ease and comfort and safe, anything but pain. And we are so awash in this very powerful system of belief that often, without even realizing it, I think our expectations are transformed. We awake each day believing it will be a good day, a great day, the perfect day. We expect that even further for many of us that expectation grows into a belief that we deserve that maybe because of the way that we live our lives maybe that's why we believe we deserve that the things that we've done for others our charity our generosity our good deeds our bible reading our church involvement we've done all the things we should goodness we've believed in god We're disciples of Jesus. We give to his kingdom and seek his kingdom and try to bring about his kingdom. And so these are the expectations that we have of God. We're good. God is good. Life should be good. Because good things happen to good people from a good God. And if bad things come, if pain comes, then he'll take care of it. That's where Heman, the songwriter, begins with that belief. Verse 1, Yahweh, my God who delivers. The God who delivers. The God who saves. I mean, easy on one hand to believe, right? Because, Because look at the Old Testament. It is filled with stories of the God who saves. The pinnacle of which, right, is the great Proof of his delivering power, Israel being saved from Egypt. The story they would go back to again and again and again. God's power in plagues, his wondrous acts of a pillar of fire and cloud, the splitting of the Red Sea, water from rocks, quail from the skies, manna from the ground. Deliverer. But always? Isn't the dread pirate Roberts right that life is pain? That even for Christians, it can be really dark, that it can go poorly, that even if you're doing everything right and just the way that you should, that life can be really, really hard and you can be faced with both an outward and an inward darkness and that that it can be that way for a while. Sometimes it can be that way for a really long time. Sometimes it might be that way for a lifetime. And what is comforting to me as a Christian is that my faith does not ignore that reality. That my faith is real and can stand honestly and admit life is pain. Maybe not always in totality, But life is shot through with pain. And my faith doesn't naively ignore that. My Bible doesn't ignore that reality. Psalm 88 is here proving the point. And while the first part of verse 1 is true, that God is a deliverer, and while in some degree the songwriter believes that, what makes this psalm so sad is is that it isn't helping him all that much in his pain. Rather, it's highlighting his pain because in his current experience, God is not acting like God. For much of the rest of the psalm I think is a, it's almost as if he is piling up evidence that God is not a deliverer. In other words, if you are the God of salvation and you are, why aren't you acting like it? Prove it! Save me! Please! Just Save me! Why aren't you saving me? Don't you even care? By day I have cried out to you, by night before you. Herein lies the essence of lament. Though seemingly rejected by God, he will not cease to pray honestly. He does not cease to pray, which while it would seem helpful for a moment, it also speaks to the horrible truth that he is not being delivered. He is suffering unceasingly, day and night, night and day, every moment. And he is seeing no, no change in his condition. No response to the prayer to make it stop. His whole person is full of trouble. He is absolutely overwhelmed through and through. There is no part of him or in his life that remains untouched by pain. And the pain is so intense, he is near death. His life has arrived at Sheol, a realm where Jews believe that God did not operate and where God was absent. He is the proverbial dead man walking. And his His anguish is accentuated by the sense that not only is God absent from him, it seems that he is absent from God. God has forgotten him. He is an outcast among the dead of whom you have been mindful no more. And that conclusion seems to only add to his physical torment because he feels the mental and emotional anguish of being abandoned and forgotten by his God. There is absolutely no activity from God coming to him on his behalf. Or is there? Because he thinks about that for a moment. And as he rises... In mental anguish, the thought strikes him, wait a second, God is in control, so if my life is filled with so much pain, it must be, in fact, that God isn't being inactive, he is actually being active in causing my suffering. You have put me in the deepest pit. Depression. You have put me in the dark places in the depths. Upon me, your fury has pressed down. Punishment, maybe? With all your breakers, you have afflicted me. You have distanced my acquaintances from me. Isolation, he's feeling isolation. You have made me a great abomination to them. I am confined so that I cannot go out. He's he's trapped in a cocoon of his pain. Have you ever been in so much pain that you just didn't want to be around anybody? Felt trapped by it. My eye has become dim through affliction. Probably crying so much that he just can't even see straight. And as he stretches out his hands to God in verse 9, he asks six rhetorical questions in verses 10 through 12. All I believe with an implied answer of no. Do you know what we do with rhetorical questions, right? You know what rhetorical questions are. They're actually just declarative statements, right? And I believe that all of these questions assume an answer of no. So let's turn them into statements that he's saying to God. You don't work wonders for the dead. Ghosts do not rise to confess you. Your commitment is not announced in the grave. Your truthfulness in the baden. Your wondrous acts are not made known in the darkness. Your faithfulness is not made known in the land of forgetting. So deliver me. Don't let me die. Save me. Start acting like God. And he continues to swirl down, crying for help in verse 13. When he begins his day, when he arises in the morning with his pain right there, he is there before God, raising his plea once again in verse 13. He's feeling Yahweh's rejection. He's feeling that Yahweh is hiding from him, verse 14. Looking back on his life, he remembers nothing but ill health and ill fortune, verse 15. Looking Godward, he is terrified, verses 16 and 17. And looking for human comfort, he can see none at all. Verse 18. John Gay. All that is left to Heman is darkness. It's the last word in the song. All hope, all light, all friendship, all fellowship, all companionship have been removed from him. And in his poem, he is unwilling to betray the reality of his experience by trying artificially or dishonestly to mitigate his message by concluding with a voice of hope that he does not feel. And who are we to tell him to act otherwise? And this is what we've said is the aim of our series in the Psalms, right? To live in complete honesty and that's what he's doing. He's not gonna sugarcoat this with God. Pain is not our expectation of life, generally, I don't think. As Americans. Pain is not our expectation from life. Pain is not our expectation from God for our lives. And pain, therefore, can shake us up and rattle our faith. It could cause us to walk away from the faith and to walk away from God. When viewing the most recent Thor movie with friends, if you're wondering where this is going, <laughs> I was surprised actually, stunned, to be confronted by the topics in Thor Love and Thunder <laughs> The topics of suffering and the sovereignty of god the villain in the movie is played by christian bale and in the very beginning of the story we see him as a father traveling through a desert clearly struggling he has a small child with him a daughter she's young probably eight or nine years old beautiful long hair and she is suffering with her father from hunger and thirst, they're, they're caked with dust as they're struggling to make their way through this desert burning in the sun. And Baal, his character, is crying out to his God, crying out for salvation, crying out for deliverance, for him and for his little girl who at this point he is now carrying. And with tears, making little Furrows in the dust on his cheeks. She dies. He continues to stagger forward, carrying her lifeless body through the sands, and he comes upon an oasis. He makes his way through the greenery and the beauty to a cool pool where he plunges deep under the water, breaks the surface, gulping in just refreshment in life. And then he crawls over to the, to the shore of this little cool pond and there's piles of fruit and he just goggles, gobbles them up, getting nourishment and strength. And as he's doing that, the camera pans back and he hears a voice this celestial-looking being sitting there on a throne watching him. And Baal pleads, why didn't you save us? Why didn't you deliver us? Why didn't you help her? We worshiped you and believed in you and followed you and sacrificed everything for you and you did nothing. And the God is Dismissive, uncaring, capricious. I'll make more of you. And Baal's character is filled with hatred. And a gift of evil rises in the midst of a garden, a sword. And Baal becomes the God killer and goes on a rampage to kill all the gods in the Pantheon. Because why should you be believed? You don't help us when we cry in our pain. So there I was in the first 10 minutes of a Marvel movie being confronted with what I can only believe is the director's belief and the writer's belief about the value of belief of the gods, of our one and only true God, Yahweh, and they are addressing an important question for our culture, for which we must be ready to answer for ourselves and for our culture. They're confronting us to wrestle with what we believe about God and what our expectations are of Him in our pain. And so often our expectations are like Baal's character. If I come to God in my pain, asking for deliverance, he should rescue me because I believe in him and I trust in him, so he should save me. Family So often, I think that the way we think about life and about God is that we want to be this living witness to his saving acts and wondrous power, right? Like, we want to be the testimony of victory. We want to be the hero in the story whose life was going really well, and then there was this horrible tragedy, and we call out to God, and he saves us, and we witness, and we testify to how great he is. I mean, who doesn't want to be that character in the story, right? I mean, that's a great story. And there's so many times where God does exactly that. And it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's glorious. But what if the story to tell in your life is that even though he never rescued you in this life, that you never stopped trusting? What if the part you play, the character that you are in this grand drama is the one who died a good death? That you are not the hero, but you are the martyr. That you are not the one to live the long, good life, but a long, painful darkness leading to premature death. You see, I think Bale's character in the Thor film provides a warning. We could be in danger of hating God when we question God if our sole expectation of him is deliverance from pain in this life. Or just as dangerous is we could be in danger of thinking that God hates us because he doesn't deliver us from pain in this life. But your experience of pain does not mean, dear brother or sister, that God hates you. It doesn't mean that God has forgotten you. It doesn't mean necessarily that you have done something wrong. Do you remember the story of the man born blind that Jesus and his disciples ran into? You can read it in John 9. In verse two there, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Don't we still sometimes kind of think that? Like something must, you must be doing something and God's getting you. It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so that the power of God could be seen. In Him. I've had the privilege of visiting Washington, D.C. a number of times, and one of my favorite things to do in Washington, D.C. is to go to the National Gallery of Art. And I love to go into the gallery and find one of the... They've got, like... Anybody ever been to D.C. and the Smithsonian and those national galleries? Like, they have these ginormous paintings, and I love to find one of these ginormous paintings and sit in front of, like, they'll have benches in front of them, right, where you can sit and kind of look and study and meditate on the painting. And I love to just sit and stare for like 30 minutes. And it's just amazing all the things that you start to see in a painting when you sit and stare at a masterpiece like that. You see these, these giant swooshes of like bright color and, and vivid lights and that have been placed there with intentionality and care by an artist in a way that I just can't fathom or could do myself. But what you also see are these swishes of, of black and and gray and darkness in the painting. And what you begin to realize is that all of it is needed for the beauty of the whole the bright and flashy and vivid and the dark and somber and gray. You see, I always want to be the dark or the bright, really flashy colors. That's, what, that's the role I want to play. Because they're the parts that pop and look beautiful to my eye. But what if we, this feels so trite. (laughs) It's hard to say, because I know that some of you are in pain here this morning. Like, I mean, probably right now, you're physically feeling pain. It was hard to get here. Or there's some deep emotional, mental, pain that made it hard to be here. And I'm so glad that you're here. And so it's really hard to say to you that, what if for a season or maybe even a lifetime, you're the, the dark bits in the painting? And there's something really, really important I wanna say to you as you think about that. And it's that the only way that I think that you can face pain, maybe extended seasons of pain and darkness, like we are seeing and hearing from this psalmist, is that you have to have a bigger vision and a bigger view of life and death and life after death. You see, theology matters, family, to the everyday. Theology is practical by definition. Don't let someone say, I'm not a theologian. You are all theologians, every one of us. And if we're going to weather the storms of pain, we are going to have to construct pillars of belief that go deep down before the storms come so that the belief there will hold us fast when all else gets swept away in our lives. We have to have a longer view than just the little dot of our existence in this age. We have to be thinking about the long line of eternity and infinity. Draw right now, if you've got paper, a long line and then draw a little dot like that. That's this life, right? The Bible tells us we're just a vapor that's here and then it's gone. So even if we're playing the dark bits, it's just for this little dot on this infinity of a line that stretches out throughout eternity. And in the pain, that's hard to see. So you've got to get that in here before the storm comes. We have to understand how that dot of our present experience relates to a life that is eternal. It's why Pastor Jim read from 2 Corinthians for us this morning, because Paul understood this. He knew what it was like to experience pain. I'm sure you all have read, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you have read 2 Corinthians 11, the famous list of Paul's suffering and pain. But don't forget that he began that same letter by recounting his pain. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble that we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. Just like I love about the psalmist, I love this about Paul. Because I grew up thinking Paul as kind of like this Superman, right? Like he had rippling abs and like huge biceps and he was this guy who could just take on anything. I mean, he planted churches across Asia. They put rocks on him. He just rose up like he was such a stud. And he says here, we thought we would never live through it. We expected to die. Does that sound like the psalmist, that they were at the edge of the pit and at the edge of Sheol? But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves, and we learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. Paul was able to see a purpose in his pain, and it didn't result in destroying his belief, but in teaching him that belief was all he had. Maybe you're here exploring God today in your pain or just, you're just here. You don't really know him and you're wondering who he is and what this church thing is. Wondering if he's worth belief. And there's a lot of things that we can say about our struggles in the midst of pain. But I think we do have to say at least this, what is the alternative to believing in God? I mean, you walk away, you say you're not worth belief. What are you left with? How does not believing in God help you in your suffering and pain? As Paul went on in his letter to his friends in the church family in Corinth, he continued to help them see how pain in this life, the dot of this life, has ripple effects over the course of eternality. I want to read 2 Corinthians 4 to you, and I want to warn you that I really wish we could preach like four sermons here. I won't be able to touch on everything here. I want you to go and study it later because this is an absolutely stunning and remarkable passage that I want for you in your armory to fight the fight of faith when you are in pain or to help someone else do that, right? Because either you are in pain or you're going to face pain or someone you know is in pain. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, yes, but not destroyed. Always carrying in our bodies as we're dying what feels like death, the death of Jesus, so that believing the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh that is in pain. So death is at work in us, but life in you, life in you. Do you see what he's saying there? Part of why you may be going through pain is to bear in your body the death and life of Jesus and the way that you are living that suffering out is speaking and proclaiming in itself the gospel of Jesus to someone else. Because they see, you're not giving up on him and you're not walking away. And so he says, right, so he's like, he's with them here. Come on, stay with me, Corinthians. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. So we also believe and so we speak. In other words, speak honestly. Talk this out. Talk it through. Knowing that here's, here's how we're going to speak. Knowing that he who raised our Master Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. You see what he just did there? Dot in line. This is hard, right? Like you gotta, it's like out of body experience, right? Like sometimes what we gotta do, listen to me now, look at me. We gotta, our soul has been purchased by Jesus. We are safe in Jesus. So we might, we gotta kind of step outside sometimes and go, whoa, Matthew's in big trouble right now. He's, wow. But I'm okay. And I'm gonna be okay. Because I'm gonna die And i'm going to be with jesus one day and so are you we're going to make it through what how did the old puritan say it this mortal coil and it is all for your sake our pain remember what he said in chapter one our pain is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people this grace of this testimony of how we're walking through this death of jesus life of jesus it will increase thanksgiving to the glory of God because people will see you and they will believe with you. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for our momentary lightness of affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. See what he did there? Momentary lightness of affliction, eternal weight of glory. And he doesn't just say it helps you think about that eternal. Do you see what it says? It produces for us an eternal weight of glory. So there is something about my suffering in this moment, this momentary lightness of affliction that has an impact and ripple effect throughout eternity, increasing the weight of glory. Not just now, but that I'll experience then so that I can in some way, and not always, I might just be at a Psalm 88 moment, but maybe he'll deliver me and I'll go, I know this pain is gonna make glory Better. So I love you for it. Love you. Because I'm looking to the things that are, not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we do not lose heart. And we do not give up. As, as we cry out from the grave of our pain. Paul even says it in 2 Corinthians 1.11. Keep praying. Would you please pray for us? Because praying helps. Even praying like this in Psalm 88. A kind of praying that may sound like giving up. You know, when I read this Psalm a couple weeks ago, knowing it was coming, I thought that the only part, the only positive part of the Psalm was that very first sentence. It wasn't even a whole verse, just Yahweh, God my deliverer. Like, okay, at least He still theologically sees it, that He's Savior. But then you know what I realized? The whole Psalm is a positive note because He's still praying. And the fact that he's still speaking to God shows he hasn't given up completely yet. It shows that belief isn't dead. I hear you, girl. (laughs) Cry out to him. You know, I believe that praying like this has made its way into the Bible because God was pleased with it. Which might be hard to believe, because you look at, if you read this carefully, like these are kind of words that you would say, and, you th- and like if someone said next to you, like I'm gonna just kind of move over a little bit, so when the lightning comes. <laughs> we might look at this prayer and be tempted to critique it. Or worse, to critique, to critique the prayer. Tempted to point out where he's wrong or seems to have gone over the line or doesn't have reality quite right or in point of fact shows an incomplete picture of all that is going on. Oh, friends. We can be so tempted this way sometimes when we hear people in their pain. The first thing that you think because they say something and it's not theologically accurate because of their pain and the first move is you want to correct that and you think that that's the right thing to do instead of just letting them grieve. Because even though this Prayer, I think, is imperfect. It shows a man continuing to pray, continuing to address God directly. It shows a man, I think, desperate to maintain a relationship with his God despite his present circumstances, which are causing him despair most agonizingly over what the state of his relationship to God might be. He's not only in pain for the pain but because of what that might be saying about who, where he and God are at. And therefore, it gives us words for our seasons of pain that have not yet resolved and seemingly have, like you just feel like I keep crying out and my only friend is darkness, and every day, darkness. The night coming on just feels like your life. Jamie Grant this prayer expresses, expresses none of the great statements of faith that we frequently come across in other psalms of lament, yet the very act of offering a prayer in a time of great despair and disillusionment with God is in itself arguably the greatest act of faith. When it comes to the spirituality of prayer in general and lament in particular, listen to this, engaging Directly with God is more important than being right. Engaging with God directly is more important than being right. That should liberate you and change how you interact with someone who's in pain. So we do not lose heart. And we do not give up crying out from the grave of our pain. We speak words honestly before God, even if we are fearful about getting our words just right. Don't ever let that stop you from talking freely with God. We shouldn't get ticked at God. It's not right to be angry with God. But not trying to work through that doesn't help you. Because you know what? If you just think like I'm holding that in my head, right? Like he knows. (laughs) He knows that's there. So speak honestly with God. In no small part because this is what Jesus taught us. See, Jesus taught us about right expectations. If anyone deserved to wake up each morning and expect good coming to him because he had been good and was good, it was the Son of God. Amen? A good man expecting good things from a good God. He was the best human ever. But do you know what Jesus expected? Pain. Pain. He expected acts of fury from his father, acts of terror, all of his breakers on him. He expected rejection and affliction. He expected the father to hide his face while on that cross to be utterly forsaken and seemingly forgotten. And even then, he did not stop from crying out at the very edge of the grave, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he entered darkness, to give us hope in our darkness. Worship team, would you come up? And the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. (laughs) This is so good, you guys. This is so good. Look at verses 10 to 12. This psalmist had, had put these questions out there. with the the assumption that no, none of these things are true. But with Jesus, it all changes because God does work a wonder for the dead. A ghost does arise to confess him. His commitment to us is announced through Jesus' grave. His truthfulness to deliver forever does shine bright and burst forth from bad. His singularly greatest act of wonder is made known in and because of the darkness and his faithfulness is remembered in the land of the forgetting in Jesus. Wow! Glory out of pain. A momentary lightness of affliction producing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So that believing in in Jesus, and you can believe in Him today if you haven't, just come to Him with the empty hands of faith Just say, "I, I believe in you. He will pull you through all your pain into glory. There is a person in history who is a lot like Baal's character in that Thor movie. You know about him. His name is Job. He lost not one child but many and everything else besides. And when he cried out, things only got worse. And do you know what he said? It's recorded in the book of Job. Though you slay, me, I will hope in you. So maybe you have felt broken and torn apart and forgotten by God, and even though you are here this morning, your heart feels far from him because of those situations, but come, return to the Lord, sing a song to the one who is all you need.